Hello and welcome to the very first episode of 20 to 1, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So now it's time to welcome Professor James Lee. Um, James is a professor of law and the vice dean of education at King's College London. His research interests cover private law, law reform, and judicial reasoning in appellate courts. James is also co-editor of the best-selling trust textbook out there, Hanbury and Martin Modern Equity. James, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this sunny Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So James, you're an incredibly talented academic and I think many of your students have praised you quite highly for your teaching and demonstrated by the numerous teaching awards that you won and picked up along the years. But I'm, but I'm curious, did you always want to be an academic and have you always been this good? <laughs> well, that's, that's an overly generous um, introduction and uh, it's a pleasure to help um, students, but also to benefit from the wisdom of colleagues. Um, so I chose to do law as a degree because I knew it was an academic subject um, rather than because I wanted to be a lawyer necessarily. I was open to the possibility of that. But um, my father is a law professor because I lack imagination. And um, I uh, was toying between history and classics and law. But I thought studying a new subject that I hadn't done in my school education and that I thought would draw upon the skills of uh, subjects that I did like at university would be rewarding um, and then because of my father's um, calling I was I knew that you didn't have to be a lawyer just by doing law so I uh, enjoyed the study of it and stayed for a master's and then um, didn't want to do a fifth straight year of, of studying a professional course apologies to you <laughs> currently doing one but um, so then I uh, had an interview for a fixed term job uh, and uh, teaching and um, enjoyed it and then have been bubbling my way through ever since. Would you say that your father had quite a profound impact then on your, your journey towards becoming a, an academic? Uh, well, I mean, I think um, uh, I'm inspired by both my parents uh, who met doing law at university. Um, I'm always wary of it sounding like kind of Greek tragedy to uh, be <laughs> so closely in my father's footsteps. And we didn't do identical areas of the law, but I think it was more just I knew that there was academic interest in the discipline of law and um, engaged with it as a student in those terms. Um, but yeah, I've been tremendously lucky with both my parents' influence and uh, my father. And I read each other's uh, stuff and, and offer uh, insightful and or sarcastic comments. <laughs> so um, yeah, and particularly the, the love of, of all aspects of the job, teaching, administration, as well as research, I think I definitely admitted. What would you say is sort of the one amazing thing that you've sort of inherited teaching-wise? I think it's probably uh, ways of explaining things. So when it comes to teaching, but also in, in my research, it's thinking what's a good analogy to illustrate a point um, or uh, what's a different way of presenting something. Particularly if the first time you put something across, you're not sure the point's got across, then thinking of it in a different way um, is really useful for the student, but also really useful for the teacher. So um, whether that's drawing on analogies from literature or um, more recent television uh, and film or, or 
Twitter memes and so on, uh, <laughs> not yet on TikTok, but, but thinking of ways to make things relatable and accessible whilst not um, being simplistic is important. If, if um, I learned earlier in my career that I think if students remember the gimmick, but not the point that the gimmick was helping to make, then it's too gimmicky. And would you, would you say you have an example, I guess, of a, of a situation, a story or an illustration or something along those lines that sort of you've given during your academic career, which has really helped students get the point? Well, it may be overconfident because maybe some of my former students will listen to this podcast and not remember uh, some of those points. But yeah, it's occasionally using the lyrics of a song to make a point. Or um, I did once uh, pretend to fall down a trapdoor to illustrate the fact that the case that involved someone falling down a, a cellar door um, and it was a Friday afternoon lecture. I wasn't sure everyone was equally invested in the topic of um, <laughs> uh, uh, vicarious liability. So um, I went behind the desk and pretended to fall down and then walked back up the imaginary stairs. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, but I think it's also partly, uh, as well as individual instances, it's crucial for students to feel like their teacher is invested in the subject, but also in their progression. And it's probably uh, as much about one-off things, it's the overall feeling and memory that, that you the students with that you care. Um, obviously, everyone should care, but, but also students should be able to tell. I think. No, that, that's amazing. Um, and, and I guess this is really interesting because I, I think this might inform a little bit of, of your teaching style, but would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? Um, I think probably extroverted when teaching. Um, equally, you know, the life of a scholar can be sometimes solitary as well, so I'm uh, used to my own company, I suppose. But yeah, I think probably whenever I've done Myers-Briggs tests, I've always had the same <laughs> result of uh, ENFJ, which is uh, teacher is the style that they call that, I think. So, um, yeah. So, but I'm, I'm, my personality type is really someone who overthinks the answers to personality questions, so... <laughs> don't, don't we all these days yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and would you say that's inf I guess informed a little bit of your teaching style you know falling behind trap doors and, and the rest of it yeah so uh, uh, I think when you so I didn't have any teaching experience when I started my first job and um, I was asked in my interview you don't have any teaching experience so <laughs> but you have been studying for four years so what do you think you've learned about teaching from being taught um, and I said well, I think it's important to answer the student's question. So we as teachers tell students they always have to answer the specific question set, but equally if a student asks us a question, we should do that. Um, and then I said, I think probably the teaching style has to be you try and mimic the good bits of those who taught you well and avoid the bits that you didn't find as helpful. So we're all an amalgam. Um, and then yeah, being reflective and listening to what does and doesn't work as you grow grow through the, the role as you get older. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I think trying to be engaging is important and, and thinking about how it comes across as well as you know, realising how comfortable one has to be with the material to be able to teach it well. I think it's no, that, that's amazing. And, and I guess, you know, we've spoken a lot about teaching and sort of how to become an, a more effective teacher. Mm. Uh, but I guess the other half of your job is being an excellent academic. Um, and how do you go about doing that? What inspires your ideas and, I guess, motivates you to be interested in private law, law form, judicial reasoning? You've done lots on judges, for example. What, what, what 
pushes you then? Yeah. So I um, uh, started my career in 2006. And that was when things were changing. They definitely probably changed now in that it was unusual to go straight into a master's. Then there's now much more of an emphasis to do a PhD. Um, I didn't do a PhD. Um, and I think nowadays the level of, of competition and the expectations on people early in their career are such that it would be uh, not impossible, but it would be irresponsible to suggest that people should uh, uh, just do a master's and, and then go through because you need to grow as a scholar and think about it. So for me, as a student, uh, I had to do a fair amount of jurisprudence, um, and I always found it easiest to understand jurisprudence by thinking, why should we care about this as law students? Yeah. How does it relate to actual law? Um, and so thinking about the cases that we were reading and, and the extent to which decisions did or did not conform to the kind of jurisprudential picture that we learned, um, and then making connections across areas. So. Um, my interests are a bit more either unfocused or generalist, depending on uh, how you want to describe it. So I'm interested broadly in how legal change, legal institutions interact and how that bears on the development of the law. But my research agenda developed kind of incrementally from my first article. So I was teaching uh, a job that didn't have a contractual research requirement, but I knew I needed to write something. Uh, and I, would, I teach taught and trusts. And in my first year of teaching, there were a couple of recent cases I had to get to grips with that had happened since I'd studied the subject, which was unfair. Uh, there were some recent cases. And I noticed in one tort case on causation and one trust case on dishonest assistance, um, sort of different ways in which you can sue people for, for our, our listeners, um, Lord Hoffman, a famous judge, had clearly changed his mind about a previous case he'd been in and pretended he hadn't. And I thought that was interesting as a, from an academic perspective, but making those connections between these two different areas of the law and the same judge doing similar things, but people might not notice. Um, and so I then thought uh, about how that related to some of the traditional theories we'd studied as jurisprudence. And um, uh, talking again about analogies, I said that the judge changing his mind was a bit like when uh, Arthur Conan Doyle brought back Sherlock Holmes and <laughs> killed him off uh, and then pretended he hadn't. So, you know, drawing some analysis, not, not doing law and literature work necessarily, but just thinking, well, uh, what does thinking of judges as authors do for our understanding? Um, and that has then fed into the next 15 years of um, thinking about uh, how the way in which you set up courts, uh, the people who sit on the courts, the structure of the organizations matters and makes a difference to the development of the law. And the Supreme Court, the highest court in this country, hears cases that you know, some of our listeners might have heard of the ones involving Brexit and so on. But it also deals with traffic accidents, with uh, who owes money to whom, with um, welfare benefits, all things that really matter to individual people. And so bringing that decision-making uh, to the fore is, I think, I guess you've spent the last 15 years studying the way the constitution of the courts have evolved over time. And would you say, I guess, based on everything you've seen, that the constitution of the court today versus where it was, let's say, 40, 50 years ago, means that we're making better decisions today? As I started writing, there had just been a piece of legislation called the Constitutional Reform Act 2005 that changed our final court, so created the Supreme Court, which then started in 2009. So I was starting to think about some of these questions when it was formerly the House of Lords, 
and then now it's the Supreme Court. So I'm a Supreme Court hipster because I was into it before it was cool. And um, uh, what I think is, so I think it's it's uh, it's continuity rather than transformation in terms of the substance of the decisions. But there are some uh, changes, certainly in terms of how the judges think of their role in speaking to a wider audience of the public, being aware of their um, publicity, uh, does I think make a difference. And also the uh, greater scope it's a slow process, but more diversity on the courts, not just in the Supreme Court, but also in the lower courts as well. Um, Baroness Hale, just before I started writing, so 16, 17 years ago, was the first woman ever to be appointed. Um, and we have started to see some, some of the changes to appointments process, I think, lead to some more diversity. Um, but I think the nature of the judgments is not uh, transformed simply by being the Supreme Court. Um, Courts go through phases of having good days and bad days. I suppose it waxes and wanes. I think that's a, a really interesting point to say that I guess over time things have continued about just just where they are. That if anything, it's well, what we're doing is modernizing the way that we receive and and engage with the decisions of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and then do you see that evolving again in the future? Yeah. So. Um, of course, in the last 20 years, say, um, human rights cases framed under the Human Rights Act formed more of a diet of the court's work than when it was, was incorporated. Uh, I think into the new uh, world, as we record in January 2022, um, post-Brexit, the courts will have more role, the Court of Appeal as well as the Supreme Court, in developing the law uh, in areas that were previously covered by European law. Um, I don't detect currently too much of an appetite for the courts to do that on a daily basis. Um, there's a lot of reticence, but uh, the agenda there will start to come through a bit more from strategic litigation, I suspect. So um, currently we see on the Supreme Court that the representation of uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds or women uh, could be higher, or, or rather it could be much more representative of uh, the the people today. Um, what, what, what's your view in with regards to, I guess, diversity of representation at the Supreme Court? So the uh, efforts that have been made to change the appointment process, um, so 30 years ago it was down to the government to tap someone on the shoulder uh, to be appointed to the highest court when it was the Supreme Court. Now it is an independent appointments process. Um, but the nature of uh, who qualifies in terms of being potential candidates, uh, you've still got to be working through the system uh, to get uh, with the requisite amount of experience because there are statutory criteria. So uh, the engagement by the Supreme Court itself, who um, as we speak next week are running a webinar on becoming a Supreme Court justice that anyone can dial into, that sort of engagement does, I think, matter. Uh, it's not just about um, those sorts of activities, though, but it's also thinking what ways in which you can shape uh, expectations of what a Supreme Court justice does. So um, in the last uh, seven years, it's been possible for someone to be appointed on a part-time basis to the Supreme Court, but that's never happened. So the Supreme Court needs to have the full-time equivalent of 12 justices, as opposed to having 12 people serving 100% of the time, uh, which could be more accessible for those with caring responsibilities and job shares. Uh, but also routes such as appointing me with from academia. Uh, Lord Burroughs, uh, 
uh, was appointed as the first person to be appointed directly from academia. Lady Hale, uh, Lord Roger, uh, Lord Lloyd Jones, other judges have had academic experience before. Um, but if academia ever has the potential to contribute a more diverse range than currently the High Court benches and court do, um, that will change over time. But you still need to have qualified to be a lawyer in order to be eligible and then to have had 15 years' experience in the law. And as I mentioned before, people don't know if they're going to be academics qualify in the first place necessarily. So the superficial attraction of being able to recruit from academia uh, isn't necessarily delivered on in, in reality. Uh, so that could be something to think about. And then it's also visibility at all levels of um, the judiciary, uh, whether that's in tribunals, in high court bench, and I think there are now increasingly more representation there that it's, it needs concerted efforts to encourage applications and also to make sure that the appointments process is incentivize, not just the paradigm stereotype or, or, or archetype of what a judge looks like. Representation matters both in terms of the substance of judging, but also in terms of confidence. No, that, that's, that, that's a really interesting point you make, and especially in relation to, um, I think, more academics becoming um, judges and, and having the opportunity to sit on the Supreme Court. But I guess isn't there also an issue with diversity in academia, right? Um, uh, I guess in the in the language of sociologists, Eduardo Benella Silva, academia is a place where you know racism exists without racists. Um, and I guess with nine out of ten professors in the UK being white, would you say that today academia has a, a problem with race, with diversity, with representation? So there are many different forms of diversity. Um, and so I would, uh, there are always efforts and initiatives to do with diversity and representation. I think um, we need to think of them in different ways because the challenges faced depend on which protected characteristics we're, we're talking about. Um, as we speak here in the King's Building at King's College London, uh, there is a wall of uh, photos of the female professoriate just beneath uh, on the floor below where we're uh, talking. Um, and then in terms of ethnicity, uh, there is much more work to be done in supporting uh, colleagues of all backgrounds to be able to come through. So we can also think about class as well as race and, and the intersections between those. Um, and I've tried my best in my career to be supporting the social mobility from students, but also think about what else can be done to encourage staff to know the right time to apply for promotions and to be thinking about what uh, advice we give people uh, across institutions as well, because if you're at an institution as a black British man, for example, and you're the only uh, black British man, then some of the advice and conception of those challenges might not be available. So uh, fostering connections, but also trying to have a balance as a white man myself in a leadership position of, of leading, but not stifling the conversation. Um, so uh, there is more to be done, but I think there is more um, awareness of it as a, as a future challenge and thinking about different ways in which people can manifest their qualities rather than there being abstract conceptions of how many publications you have to have had to be a professor or, or whatever it may be. No, that, that's incredibly well said. I, I think I recently saw a tweet on Twitter 
um, that makes reference to reverse networking, sort of this idea that you reach out to people who might not want to network but are too shy to, to get involved. Is that something that you would, would agree with? Yes. Um, I also think we need to make sure that we don't privilege the networking uh, as the only means to come through. And it depends what you mean by networking. So um, talking to people like a normal person and making connections is a good thing. Talking to someone only because you have an agenda about advancing your own career by talking to that person is bad. Um, so sometimes it's, well, are the networks the problem? But absolutely, that reaching out to people, and, and it, there are many different forms of that. So um, sending a note to a junior scholar whose article you just put on the reading list to say, oh, I enjoyed this, just so you know, this is on the reading list, is an empowering, helpful thing to do. Um, at conferences, being alive to who's standing on the edge of the coffee break and just going up to talk to people um, or bringing them into a conversation as well. I think that's a better way of doing it rather than saying, you, you're not talking to anyone. <laughs> I'm not talking to you, but saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure we've met. We'd like to come and join us in trying to be inclusive, but not um, uh, doing it in a way that highlights the lack of um, the, the fact that the person was standing on the room. Um, and that's definitely one thing I want us to be sure in the future in the academy with conferences, especially if they're hybrid, that we get opportunities liked for everybody because on its face, enabling people to participate remotely as well as present in person could be a good thing because people who couldn't otherwise present wouldn't do so. But if it's in the coffee breaks or the interactions that, that the quality bits of the conference happen and people who are participating remotely miss out on that, then there's a risk of differently emphasizing and accentuating inequalities. Um, so finding ways to bring everybody in um, is important. But it, but it also goes to how people's papers are received. So yeah. if the first question after someone's paper is, yeah, that was fine, but wouldn't it have been better if you'd mentioned this obvious point? If that's the sort of question someone asks, yeah. that is unhelpful, needlessly aggressive, and for people from underrepresented groups, reinforces concerns and inequalities. Whereas if you say, oh, so I think that was a really interesting paper. I'm, I'm just towards the end, I was, I was wondering about what you'd make of this point as well, because I think your angle would be really interesting. You can say the same, same thing of, I think you need to think about this point, but the way in which you do it, and it's kind of self-awareness of power dynamics and so on, as far as that's possible. Um, I'm conscious I'm not setting myself up as a paragon of virtue here, but, um, <laughs> but just getting, being aware of that oneself, but also encouraging others to be aware of it. Um, no, I think that's right. I think, I think I can attest to it myself when I was sort of presenting a paper I was writing in the Oxford Obligations Discussion Group and um, I had come up with a couple of ideas and I, I, I guess the academics were, were sort of very supportive in that sense and um, asking really thoughtful and insightful questions that made me go back and, and, and think about, okay, maybe I should actually have reworked this bit and actually, oh, that idea seems very useful to move this point along. Um, so I guess would you say that the, the academy is, is a very collegiate environment? Uh, and would you say that there are benefits to maybe mentoring? Yeah, um, I have found it collegial. Um, and I hope that people do, but I know not everyone does find it that way. And I think it varies a little bit by discipline. Um, accounting law is a discipline, but also within areas of law, I think there are different um, traditions of how people engage with each other's work uh, that can be uh, can involve barriers for. So what I would I, I mean that's quite interesting actually. So so when you say traditions, what what, what do you mean? 
Well, so I think some areas of scholarship, there is more of a uh, combative form, both in writing and in presentations. Yeah. Um, any say Oxford obligations as an example. I think if you are already part of that kind of world, uh, separately from how it's intended, if someone is familiar to the kind of grammar of the conversation, then something that might look hostile, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily come across hostile. But if you're new to that world, you think, why are these people going at it? And I'm not, I'm not specifically talking about Oxford obligations, but I think some areas, just the, the tone of engagement is let's just pursue the best idea yeah. as opposed to let's help this person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so and how do you think that could be sort of improved or, or, or does it need to be improved? So there's a couple of things. So I, I uh, was helped with um, the Society of Legal Scholars, which is the main kind of society for legal academics, and they have an annual conference every year. And it's partly just getting people to think, do you always need to be the first person to ask a question? Uh, or if it's a PhD student presenting their paper, the chair can get the PhD student to say how this paper relates to their project. Because if someone is presenting uh, a spin-off, then that's one thing. If it's a chapter that they're from their thesis, or it might be the very idea, like the core idea of it. And so the way in which people should engage with that, it can help people to calibrate and judge. Right? Because if somebody is speaking to the very essence of the idea of their thesis, then you should help them to improve it. If it's a spin-off paper that doesn't bear on their thesis, then the ability to shape it and maybe differently critical is yeah, it's not harming their development of their project or, or, or damaging confidence. So I think just structurally trying to guide and it's not it's not censorship or um, judging, it's just inviting everybody to be more self-aware. Um, and, and that I think is a quality. And if anyone is trying to get into academia, Twitter is a really good way to meet and come across people. We're um, doing this right. Um <laughs> Obviously, not all of Twitter is great, but it's a way to come across academics who write in your field that you might not otherwise. I, I guess, are there any academics that you would, would love to get in touch with that you haven't just yet? Uh, there are some I'd like to meet in person that I haven't yet. I think I've got enough of a correspondence with them um, uh, so far to communication. But, but I think it is interesting the extent to which people project their personality or, or persona on, on Twitter and obviously it varies a little bit by area so um, I tend not to get too much involved in politics except if there's an assault on the independent judiciary um, uh, and maybe just make my observations whereas people who work in other areas can get more easily drawn into hot topic debates I suppose <laughs> good, you know, good, good, good to be aware of and, and I, I guess moving away from I guess the, the, the hard stuff in relation to law and, and what you do um, so how was it like growing growing up for you so, so where did you where did you grow up um, uh, what, what was that like what was sort of your favourite childhood memory <laughs> <laughs> um, well so we moved around uh, a little bit my, when we were born my father was teaching here at King's and then um, uh, we lived just outside Oxford and then uh, moved to Belfast my father's extra jurisprudence there. Uh, so we were in Belfast for our primary school um, during the period of the Troubles. Um, and then moved to Manchester for secondary school. Uh, and um, lived there for a period of that time. And then I was a student in Oxford. So I have a twin sister, 
and a younger sister who's only 15 months younger. So we were very close to us um, and still are many years later. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have many happy childhood uh, memories. Um, I'm not sure I would point to any individual one in particular, but we're just the other side of Christmas, so lots of reminiscing over um, what Santa brought us. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the best gift you got? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, but uh, whichever toys from the Argos catalogue were hot uh, <laughs> in the early 90s was um, particularly uh, particularly memorable, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, but... but um, uh, we've always been a very close family, and that's been um, good and mutually supportive, uh, and probably more important during, during pandemic times. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I guess, and I guess, how has academia been for you during the pandemic, and sort of students being on Zoom, you teaching, maybe um, the noise that comes from the neighbor's garden? How, how have you managed to sort of deal with all that? Yeah, the um, local hedge trimmer has been um, <laughs> my best friend. Uh, so uh, it's been an extraordinary time for people to live through um, and uh, certainly to be studying and teaching. But the effort made by students in maintaining their studies, but also by staff across all parts of university institutions, so professional services staff as well as academics, um, those teaching has been remarkable and the amount of work that's involved um, is hard to articulate. Um, in my role as vice education, uh, so we've had to make a lot of decisions often at pace and it's difficult to know or uh, except with hindsight what, what goes right, um, but we've tried to do what's in the best interest of both staff and students and recognise differential impacts, recognise um, uh, the experience so for me, I, I think it's partly how much one has had to adapt to online teaching partly depends on what one's teaching style was in the first place. So none of us, I think, had used Teams before March 2020, but if your lecture style was to have a script and to speak from the lectern, and that requires more adaptation, regardless of how familiar you are with technology, than if you just speak to slides and, and walk around and deliver it in that way. Um, and so trying to give the opportunity for people to share ideas has been important to listen to what students have said as well as staff um, and to help everyone realize that you don't need to be constantly innovating on top of innovation and, and uh, compound interest. Yeah, that, yeah. It's working out what works well and emphasizing to students, which was true before the pandemic, that there's more than one way to teach well is crucial. It's not just... Um, style of the lecturer whose lectures you like the most there are other ways in which people can teach well and particularly that comes back to the diversity point that if people have a stereotype of archetype of who the law professor should be then we need to tackle unconscious bias to help people appreciate the different value that they get from different teaching experiences and then that's all the more so when it's a hybrid form of teaching so what advice james would you give to students um, who are that entering their law degree um, for the first time? So, firstly, there'll be some reading, um, but try to in enjoy it. Uh, and crucially, try and work out what you're learning as you go along, separately from 
the substance of the law. So we've talked earlier about the Supreme Court and in constitutional cases, you might be doing something about um, an individual suing a, a government about something. But then separately from that substance, what are you learning about reading cases, um, about the skills of analysis? Because being conscious of what you're getting better at through your degree will stand you in really good stead to, when you start your second year, be quicker at reading, uh, be um, more reflective in your development. And that's also important as a teacher to try and help students to understand separately, here's the substance, but also here's the technique for problem questions or, or, or essays. Um, and that, I think, is definitely something that's changed over time in education. That it was, I was learning, we probably just it was assumed we would work that out. But I think consciously telling students that, that uh, you're learning skills as well as stuff uh, is important in helping people to realize that from the outset makes them better lawyers and students and maybe better people uh, by the end. No, that, that's amazing. I, I'm conscious of the fact that we, we've had an, an absolutely extraordinary time with you, with you James, and, and I don't, don't want to take too much more. I know you've got a sort of a, a busy day ahead, but I, I guess before you go, um, uh, what would be, I guess, a, a final um, tip, insight, a, a comment or thought that you have maybe for those who are really interested in wanting to become academics, who are interested in law, um, um, who want to engage in, in the academy, um, speak at a, a conference, uh, what words do you have for them um, about how they might be able to handle the situation or go forth and, and get their dream? Well, get in touch. Happy to, happy to help. Um, uh, I think also use the internet, social media, podcasts uh, to come across advice in all its forms. Uh, to come across inspirational people like you, Josiah, and uh, learn, but also throughout to think about why you want to do something. So if you're uh, at school and interested maybe in doing law at university, you don't have to do law as a degree. Uh, if you want to be a lawyer, there are other ways of, of doing it. And there's no abstract answer to whether you should, apart from there's a right answer for you. And so by uh, engaging with university open days, by talking to people on Twitter by just doing a shout out or by um, engaging during your research but thinking what do you actually want based on the information that you get rather than relying on preconceived ideas or um, myths and just uh, engage and, and try to find the to take advantage of the resources and help that is available and then it's also on people like me and institutions to try and make that information available uh, in ways that reach more people. And I think initiatives like this podcast are, are hopefully a great way of doing that. Thank you very much, James. That was incredibly kind. Um, and thank you so much for your time um, this afternoon. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20to1.com. And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.